Roger Green, host of the Surfing the Mesh Tsunami podcast. Today, we're offering five conversations from episode 49, our wrap-up of the Liver Meeting 2023, plus from the vault, Laurent Costera's contribution to our Liver Meeting 2022 wrap-up. This week's vault conversation basically consists of Laurent Costera's considerable contribution to our TLM 2022 wrap-up. This episode has a fairly content-rich introduction, so let's simply use that one for you to hear what the episode will cover. Today's episode of Surfing the Mash Tsunami, reviewing the highlights of TLM 2023, has been sponsored by Madrigal Pharmaceuticals. Madrigal Pharmaceuticals is a clinical-stage biopharmaceutical company pursuing novel therapeutics for non-alcoholic steatohepatitis, NASH, a liver disease with high unmet medical need. Madrigal's lead candidate, Resmeterum, is a liver-directed THR-beta agonist oral therapy that is designed to target key underlying causes of NASH. For more information, visit www.madrigalpharma.com. This weekend, we are offering five conversations from episode 55, our wrap-up of the Liver Meeting 22, plus from the vault, a segment from our wrap-up panel at International Nash Day 2022 earlier this year. Before I start, I want to note how information-rich this episode was. As a result, my conversation comments will sometimes be more about identifying the topics we've discussed and a couple of key points about each than it is about providing the kind of detailed narrative I usually attempt. This conversation focuses on several items of interest to Laurent Costera. The first was a screening study on on patients with diabetes seen in primary care or a diabetes clinic. Using NITs to screen for NASH and MRE to screen for advanced disease, they found 65% with NAFL, 14% with advanced fibrosis, and 5% with cirrhosis. When 164 of these patients were taken into biopsy, 61% presented with NAFLD, 30% with advanced NASH, and 9% with cirrhosis. He contrasts this to a study he has led in a French diabetes clinic treatment cohort with transaminases greater than 20 in women and 30 in men, which yielded 58% NASH, 30% with advanced fibrosis, 10% with cirrhosis. From here, the group explores the implications of this study in terms of how we treat patients today. Laurent estimates that we might miss 25% of advanced fibrosis patients using current VCTE cutoffs without other parameters. He also notes that neither duration of diabetes nor A1C levels were predictive. In the end, the group concludes that, as Ken puts it, studies like these push the needle towards action in both primary care and diabetes settings, and we need to look at these issues further. With over 7,000 on-site attendees and tremendous amounts of positive energy, the liver meeting 22 produced exciting presentations, debates, and insights on a wide, wide range of topics. As we wrap up our fifth and final episode covering this event, you can hear us exploring some issues we covered earlier from a different perspective and others we had never covered about this conference before this episode. So sit back, listen, enjoy, learn, and when you're done, join the discussion on our LinkedIn discussion groups. Laurent Castera. There were several papers I spotted. One was, of course, in my field of interest that are NITs and diabetes. So this is a paper from the group of Roit Lumba that was presented by Ajmera. And this was a screening study on patients with diabetes. So basically what they did, it was a prospective study. 500 diabetic patients, either seen in primary care or diabetes clinics or two different settings. I think this is important to take into account. Why? Because the pretest probability, in other words, the prevalence of what you're looking at, especially advanced fibrosis or cirrhosis, will likely be different between primary care and diabetes clinic, where you expect it to be higher in diabetes 
diabetes clinic, of course. So what they did is using an IT, MRI, PDFF, and CAP to screen for these patients, and also every to screen for advanced fibrosis and cirrhosis. So to make a long story short, they ended up having around 65% of these patients with nephrology, 14% with advanced fibrosis, and 5 with cirrhosis. The cutoff for advanced fibrosis was 3.63 on MRE at 8.8 kilopascal using VCT. Of this cohort, uh, 164 underwent liver biopsy, and the interesting thing, of course, if you use liver biopsy, you're going to select your patient. It was not completely clear what were the indications for liver biopsy, actually, and whether they were standardized or not on the AST or ILT. But they ended up having 61% of NASH, 30% of advanced fibrosis, and 9% of cirrhosis. And the interesting thing is we have been performing a similar study in a French court. So this is a multicenter prospective court. Our patients were slightly younger, 59 years old instead of 64. And 63% of male in this court, it was 60% or more of female. But we end up with very similar result, that is the high prevalence, unexpected prevalence of advanced fibrosis in 30 to 38% of patients. In our cohort, actually, they all underwent liver biopsy, 360 patients, and with central reading, of which 330 qualify after central reading for adequate liver biopsy. But our results are very similar, as I mentioned before, 58% of NASH, 38% of advanced fibrosis, 10% of cirrhosis. The selection was slightly different uh, because we did not use NITs. We just used very low threshold of transaminase that is 20 for women and 30 for men. So I guess most diabetologists, correct me if I'm wrong, and probably some hepatologists, we consider them a normal transaminase. So meaning that in all comers, we have a high prevalence of advanced fibrosis. Last point, our cohort was exclusively for diabetes clinic, for diabetes clinic in the Paris area, where the LUMBA study was a mix of primary care and diabetes clinic, but not completely clear what was the respective distribution of primary care and diabetes clinic patients, which might explain the discrepancy between the two findings. I'm sure, Ken, you, you would like to comment. Ken Kusi. Well, these studies were incredibly important. The rate of NASH, not so much of NASH, but advanced fibrosis is a bit higher than definitely what you see in primary care in the United States and maybe in also our endocrinology clinic. Were these people particularly selected for duration of diabetes or for higher liver enzymes in the workup? I know you chose those lower end, but those who had a biopsy? Were they just, if their, if their liver enzymes were above a given level, they would get a biopsy or they had to have a cutoff of liver stiffness or any other finding to go to a biopsy? Sorry, your question is about our cohort or the LUMBA cohort? Both, but I didn't know exactly in the LUMBA cohort if the biopsy was just standardized if you met a given parameter because that the rate of fibrosis, of significant fibrosis is double of 
those cohorts in the United States. So in the Lubang cohort, no, it, it was not clear because I asked the question. It was not standardized. In our cohort, it was standardized and not based on an IT, even though we perform an IT at the same time, but we didn't use them as an indication for liver biopsy. So it was mainly related to the acceptance of patients. Patients accepted and to our surprise, we have been able to convince quite a bunch of patients. So what was the criteria, Laurent? I mean, when would you tell somebody they needed to get if the liver enzymes were above 20 in females or 30 in males? With steatosis on ultrasound, yes, that is correct. Wow. We will biopsy half of our people with diabetes or more, I mean, with, with that criteria. But it's very interesting. Maybe we're, we are missing. We've done fiber scan in a large number of people. And by fiber scan, which we know is less precise in the lower end, we, we don't see that the value is above 7 in 80% of the patients, but we may, we may be missing people, as, as you point out. Laurent, what was the thinking behind setting the level that low? No, the thinking was to say that if you look at the literature, it's very difficult to figure out what's going on. The UNOC meta-analysis published two years ago in GF, just let me stress that it's based on a very limited number of liver biopsy for an obvious reason. And in most of cases, indications for liver biopsy is not clear, and it's mostly based on a pre-selection on an IT. But still in this meta-analysis, the prevalence of advanced fibrosis was 17%, but with a wide confidence interval, so a lot of variability, of course. But our results and the LUMBA results are much higher, double than expected. So, of course, it really depends on which population you're addressing. But I think this is just to put a red flag saying that we've probably been missing a lot of patients in the diabetes clinic and the clearly a large reservoir of patients in this setting. Then to answer Ken's uh, question regarding fiber scan, in the court I mentioned, if we were to perform fiber scan first, we would miss around, depending of course on the, where you set the cutoff, we would miss around 25 to 30% with advanced fibrosis using the usual 8 kilopascal cutoff. So it's a bit worrying, meaning that you need to add to the liver stiffness probably metabolic parameters. And age as well, of course, makes a difference. In our cohort, the duration of diabetes the median was 10 years, but it did not influence the result. It was not in multivariate analysis associated with advanced fibrosis, for instance. Even though we were expecting that A1C or duration of diabetes may impact, it did not. Jörn Schattenberg. Laurent said that two times, and he said that the indication for liver biopsy was not clear. So I think it's important for us to remember what is the incentive for a physician to screen a patient or to enroll them? And that's so crucial because you get a totally selected population. And I think that comment he made twice is well taken. And it really needs an unbiased population in order to get up with these numbers uh, and, and true, talk about true prevalence. And they're not wrong. If somebody thought about liver biopsy, you get an enrichment. Yeah. In that cohort, anybody who had a fiber scan between six and a half and eight got an MRE. And the MRE also showed that they had either no fibrosis or F1, occasionally F2. So there are clearly maybe some population differences, but I think the value of Laurent is that you did a very systematic approach. And that's why we also tried to lower the ALT and the ACE guidelines to 30. And I know we chose one round number, although we know it should be lower in females to make it easier from a 
pragmatic point of view. And again, which is already low for what endocrinologists, primary care and laboratories consider normal, right? So it's a work in progress. If I may add a little comment, Ken, regarding your point, another issue when you're using liver stiffness is the BMI. And you may have patients with BMI, let's say above 40. And in these patients, I do not trust the result of VCT or even MRE because they're always challenged. So this is probably, I mean, we, we need to reanalyze the data and look more in detail, but probably the subset of patients might not benefit from elastography. And this is maybe the one you're missing. We already have advanced fibrosis, but you're not able to capture because of the limitation of the technique. This is one of the explanations. Name Alcuri. Yeah, Laura, I have a question for you. So we know a lot about when fibroscan overestimates, whether it's higher BMI or very high ALT or congestive heart failure. But I really find it difficult to find the scenarios where fibrosis scan underestimates where you have someone with F3 but then you get a stiffness of 6. Can you give us some insight on this and is there like a phenotype that we need to be aware that maybe our fiber scan is underestimating because we always say fiber scan is great for negative predictive value be cautious with the positive predictive value but these data make me also question the negative predictive value. Okay Naim, first thank you very much for your kind words before. Just to answer your point that is I think very important and critical. So in general, from the data we have in EPSI, but you know in EPSI inflammation is not an issue. The negative predictive value of Fibroscan is much higher than the positive predictive value. In NASH, I think there, the setting is different because inflammation is not like in EPI, but still is more important. And NASH probably is a confounding factor, as theatosis might be, or it's been suggested in some studies. And also the BMI is another confounding factor. So I'm not sure that the paradigm we've been using using in viral hepatitis is completely true in NASH and at least for my practice. So regarding the false positive, the VPP, as you know, in the two studies, the EDO studies and the CDK studies is about 70%. So meaning that you end up with 30% of false positive, whereas, of course, the NPV is much higher, 80 to 90%. I think apart from the BMI, you have to be cautious also with steatosis and NASH. And to me, it's probably one of the explanations for the high rate of uh, false positive. As for negative, it's, it's a bit more tricky because usually, I mean, of course, if you have a five kilopascal, I would not go further in terms of exploration and would not go for a liver biopsy or in very rare occasion because the, the NPV is so good. It's close to 97 or 8% that you're very unlikely to miss some patients. And this is also the tricky part of the study I mentioned before, when we analyze, this is not published yet, but the fibroscan data, even though, as I mentioned, they were not used for indicating liver biopsy, we still found false negative patients for F3 in this population. Wayne Eskridge. I'm not really competent to uh, delve into the details, but one thing I would like to comment on is that as pay, from a patient perspective, we're really pleased to see that the interest in the combination of diabetes and NASH has increased greatly over the last few years, and that's really important to us. I think this kind of work, uh, Lauren and Roger, is what we need to really raise the stakes for endocrinologists and primary care doctors to be 
more aggressive and more proactive in finding these people with NASH and diabetes and treating them today because we have diabetes medications that work for NASH like SEMA, glutide and bioglitazone and also for obesity, which is the other major insult, right, uh, with GLP-1. So great data and I'm very excited that this is going to finally move the needle towards action. And now back to Roger. We hope you've enjoyed this recording. If you have any questions or comments about the content of this conversation or the entire episode, please put them in the review section of the page from which you downloaded this conversation or send an email to questions at surfingnash.com. We'll be back next week with a topic still to be determined. Until then, stay safe. Surf on. We'll see you on the podcast. Bye-bye now. Surfing Nash.